Through Life Fellowship and to a four-week series entitled Tabletop Bible Study. Um, if you would like one of these books, um, this is the book, it's Tabletop Bible Study, and the origin of this Bible study is just that years ago, uh, I was teaching this and um, would just print out the Bible study and then would go to various homes and sit down at tables, and I still do that, but then some of our folks here decided to put into a little booklet form. If you're online and you'd like to have uh, a copy, you can download this from our website. There's a PDF uh, download. If you navigate and find that, you can have uh, all fill the blanks and the scriptures. So I'm just going to read through a little bit of our introduction here for both those who are watching at home um, or online and for those who are in the sanctuary with us tonight. Welcome to our tabletop Bible study. The objective of this Bible study is to understand the gospel and apply it to our lives. We will begin with a Bible overview so we can put the right pieces in the right place. Without a general knowledge of biblical history and intent, it is difficult to understand where to find the answers to questions. So our purpose is to answer the ultimate question. Now, there are two main questions that everyone is going to have to answer in their life. The first one is this. Who do you say that I am? This was the question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who is God to you? Who is the Lord to you? And the second question you need to answer is what must I do to be saved? Now the Bible comes from God himself. The Bible is the word of God and through it we find salvation. It's imperative that we believe that this is God's word for our life today. Without faith in his word, it's impossible to be saved. This Bible study has nothing to do with denominations. It's based purely on the scripture. Particular denominations or affiliations do not constitute salvation. In fact, it really doesn't matter what you call yourself. Um, the Bible is the ultimate authority for salvation for every believer. We have to search the scriptures the Word of God is our only roadmap for salvation. So whatever title that's on a church name or denomination does not mean that salvation is inherent to that place. We have to go to the Bible to find out how to be saved. Before we begin, because I've done this multiple times, in fact, I can't even remember how many times that I've taught this Bible study, I've discovered that there are built-in uh, resistance in some of our minds, and some folks will not accept the Bible's definition of salvation. So instead, they'll lean on philosophy or the opinions of other people, sometimes even the writings of other folks, and then errors are made or a fallacy is, is given. And so I just want to cover these fallacies just so we can move them out of the way and we can get to the Scripture. There are three reasons, main reasons, why people might reject the Gospel. Three main reasons. So if you have your PDF file there or you have a handout or a booklet, we'll just fill in a couple of these lines just to move these fallacies out of the way. First of all, the first reason why people would reject 
the gospel according to the Bible is because of a relationship. I'll call this the relationship error or a relationship fallacy. Acts chapter 2 verse 40, Peter said, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. So the first error is a relationship error. When, when you're in an airplane, and I don't know how many are flying these days, but, but usually the, the flight attendant will tell you that in case of an emergency and the airbags deploy, you put that mask on yourself first because if you're, if you're not coherent, then you cannot help anyone else. In fact, in trying to help other people, sometimes both of you are lost. So Peter said, save yourselves from this untoward generation. The key here is to seek out your own salvation with fear and trembling, regardless of the choices of family or friends. Every person will give an account for their own life. And just because we love someone doesn't mean that, that we should accept everything they have to say. Regardless of what other people may do, we must be saved. Now, some folks have told me, well, pastor, you know, I have a wonderful grandma. Are you telling me if she doesn't repent that she's going to be lost? That's a relationship error. Based, basing your salvation or biblical truth off of your love for someone else. So I would just say, don't get caught up in the relationship error. I love my grandfather, my grandmothers. I love all my aunts and uncles. I've, I've loved all my cousins. But my love for them should not deter me from being obedient to the Bible. Just because I love them doesn't mean that they're right. The other thing I want you to know is that, is that God is the ultimate judge for everyone's life. I'm not the judge. But I do know that I'm responsible for what I've seen and what I know. I'm responsible for what I've seen and for what I know. And, of course, this has a broader meaning in so many ways. It's important, however, that we take responsibility for ourselves. So, we want to know what the gospel is. Why would people reject the gospel? There's an error, a fallacy. It's a relationship error. Number two is a numerical error. It's numbers. It's salvation by numbers or what's right by numbers. This is a fallacy um, when considering the population, it's very easy for us to, um, to use our rational mind. How can so many people be lost? Well, pastor, how can all these people be lost? Well, numbers do not constitute truth. Everybody knows that, right? Just because a million people is doing something, uh, they can be doing it wrong. Um, I think that every Muslim, every Hindu... Every Buddhist needs to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a billion six Muslims in the world that need to, need to recognize that there's only one God and his name is not Allah. <laughs> so if it was numbers, then we've already lost. It's not numbers. It's not numerical. It is, it is truth based upon the scripture. But sometimes we get into this idea that... Um, that people are saved because there's so many people um, that believe a certain way. There's an error. Just know that numbers of people do not constitute salvation. Millions are lost because they've rejected the gospel. Therefore, we have to stay focused on the Bible's definition of salvation, not on the number of people who receive it or people who reject it.
And number three, there's a third error. It's the faith error. This is the most notable error, and it's faith. The most common human error is a lack of faith. And this error is the primary cause of all sin. Seeing that faith in God is the beginning point. It's the greatest stumbling block towards salvation, especially in the light of an antichrist and anti-Bible culture. Um, and that's exactly where we're living right now. We're living in a very anti, and in fact, not just antichrist, but a, a resistance, an, a, an, an aggression towards, for, towards Christ. So there's a faith error. If you just don't believe, if no one believes, then you're done. There's no way to receive the Bible or to receive salvation if there's no belief. So now let's just do a little overview. Maybe you're watching this tonight or you're here in the house and some of this is, it's elementary to you and you know this. But for our sake, let's just establish and uh, the foundation. So let's talk about what the Bible is. And I'll give you a couple of very specific facts that will lead us to an understanding of salvation. The Bible is a collection of 66 different books. They're written by several different writers over a span of 1,500 years. Notice that I said writers and not authors. The Bible is one book with one author. God is the author of the Bible. So... When men wrote, they were, like, they were like the secretary that, you know, the, the boss, he or she dictated and they wrote as, as it was dictated to them. Here's your Bible, 2 Timothy 3.15. Thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Here's the next verse. And I've listed it in two different versions. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Bible is God's breathed book. Here's 2 Peter 1, uh, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture, which, is, which means the writing of the scripture, is by any private interpretation. You don't get to decide what it says or what it means. For the prophecy or the writing of the scripture came not in old time by will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved or they wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So we just want to establish here tonight that the Bible is God's word and this is the small breakdown of the Bible. Let's just do a little bit of the Old Testament, New Testament breakdown and we won't, we won't delve too far into that. The Old Testament includes 39 books. It's written by 32 writers the first five books are called the law. We might also uh, know that as the Pentateuch. The Jews might call it the Pentateuch. Then there are 12 books of history. There are five books of poetry. There are 17 books of prophecy. They're broken down by minor, major, and minor prophets. And then we have the New Testament. The New Testament includes 27 books and at least 11 writers. Why would we say at least 11 writers? Because no one really knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. We think it was Paul. It could have been a couple of different people. We do know that Paul wrote 13 books in the New Testament. So it sounds like Paul's writing uh, in Hebrews, but we're not exactly sure. The first four books are called the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels. 
And we're gonna, we'll break those down a little bit more, but let's just go on. Then you have the book of Acts. So here are the Gospels. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you have this book, Acts, and then you have letters. And we're going to look at that one more time. But let's finish this out. 21 letters written to already established churches and ministers. Everybody say, they were already saved. Say it, they were already saved. And then you've got the final book, Prophecy, which is, which is Revelation. One book of prophecy. Now the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel are both mirrored books. They, they kind of go together. The book of Daniel in the Old Testament is a prophetic book and the book of Revelation. And they're written around 700 years apart. It's incredible that they have so much in common. So on your page, we're just doing a little Bible overview. Let's look at it. The Old Testament includes creation, the history of the children of Israel, from Genesis all the way to Malachi. And in that, God required blood to pay for sin. Each year, the people brought a sacrifice to the Lord to relieve their debt of sin. Year after year, now there's two schools of thought, either pushed it back or moved it forward. Anyway, they, they moved their sins away from them for one year. But after many years of doing the same thing over and over, they lost the intent. Instead of bringing their best to God, they brought diseased sacrifices. They bought, brought lambs that were blind, had the mange or crippled. Um, they didn't bring their best. In fact, they brought their least. And in Malachi chapter 1, verse 8, we see that God was angry with them because, and that's the last book of the, of the Old Testament. He was angry because they had lost their intent. And then you have the New Testament. By the conclusion of the Old Testament, God began to reject their sacrifices. And so if you have a Bible, and I have my Bible here in front of me, this is the last page of the book of Malachi, the last page of, of, of the Old Testament. And then this is the first page of the New Testament. And I got a little separator. This is a blank page. That black, blank page represents 400 years of silence. God did not speak for 400 years. The New Testament then begins with the birth of Jesus Christ. This is Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us, or God is one of us, God is among us. So let's do that again, it's in your handout. The first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels, and they recount the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we can see it right here on our, on our board in my beautiful handwriting. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. These are the first four books. And they include the, the existence of of Jesus Christ all the way to his resurrection all the way to his resurrection then you have these books here this is the books to the churches Romans the church to to 
the letters to the church at Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, letters written by John, Peter, James, the book of Revelation, all of those epistles were written to people who were already saved. So there's an assumption made that they're writing, that Paul and the other apostles are writing to a church already saved. It's kind of like someone writing us a letter or instruction. In fact, it's exactly like what we do here every Wednesday and Sunday with teaching and preaching. I may not always tell you every part of salvation because I'm, I know that I'm looking at people who are already saved. Well, what is the book that we've left out? That's the book of Acts. Here is the book of Acts right here. And the book of Acts is, is where we find people actually being saved. So there's only one book in the Bible where you find people actually being saved. So if we want to know where and how people were saved, then we have to investigate the book of Acts, where the original salvation message was first taught. We should also notice that all the other epistles were written after that book of Acts to people who had already obeyed the gospel. So while the epistles contain general views of salvation, hear this now, Romans and Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, when you, when you read those, you, you're going to read general views of salvation, but they were written to people who already experienced salvation. It's in the book of Acts that we see the keys to the kingdom actually played out in real time. So we're going to begin the plan of salvation according to the Bible, not according to anyone's idea, not according to anyone's personal thought, not according to anyone, anyone's denomination. What does the Bible say or what does the Bible teach about salvation? What do we need to do to be saved? So this is the scripture. Well, first of all, you have to start with acknowledgement. You know, you can't get help unless you at least tell someone that you have a problem. If you never say you have a problem, you'll never find the answer. Um, we've, we've come to know that. Uh, if I need help, I've got to, I've got to tell folks I've, I've got an issue. So the first issue is that everyone was born into sin. Here's Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone who ever lived has fallen short. David said this, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Romans 3, 10, verse, verses 10 through 12. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have be together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Let me just tell you, good people are not going to heaven. Uh-oh. Saved people are going to heaven. Because your goodness and my goodness does not constitute salvation. Human goodness alone is not going to bring you to heaven. Of course, bad people aren't going to heaven either. You got to be saved. You got to be good. But your goodness is not going to earn you a trip. It's not going to earn you uh, your eternal salvation. Here's Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's the beginning. The beginning is everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short. So here are our steps. How can I be saved? What can I do? How can I be saved? Um, Peter is going to preach a, a, a phenomenal 
sermon in Acts chapter 2, when he gets done preaching and telling those men in Jerusalem that this same Jesus which you crucified, he's Lord and Savior, the Bible said they were pricked in their heart. They were stabbed in their heart. And they said to Peter and John and, and to all the apostles, and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do to be saved? How can we be saved? And Peter is going to deliver the keys. They knew they were wrong. They knew they had sinned. So what is the Bible? What does it say? Here's your first step. The first step is you must have faith. You must believe. I'm going to use these as interchangeable words. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. And without faith it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to God must first believe that God exists. And that God is a rewarder of them that diligently or earnestly seek him. You have to believe. There's no, the first step in, in understanding is to believe. There, there was a, an old philosopher. Um, his name was James Sire. And, and maybe I can write it down. His name was James Sire. He said, you believe to the extent that you obey. No one really believes unless they obey. So it can't just be something you say. It's got to be something that you obey. Here is this scripture, and I love the scripture. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You can, you can put a little dot next to that scripture because I'm going to go back to that. That was Jesus talking. We're going to go back and explain that scripture because the Lord gave it. That was kind of like a wrap-up scripture to what he was talking about. How about Galatians 2.16? Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by what? The faith of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace are you saved through faith. No one makes any movement towards God unless they first believe. And the second step is obedience. Notice in the book of James that while believing is the first step, he's going to show us there's something more than even just believing. He said the devils believe. We know that the devils are not saved. Obedience is the key, but James is going to say, in James 2.19, you believe, thou believest there's one God, that's very good, you're doing well. But the devils, they also believe and they tremble. So here's this point. According to Scripture, it's not enough to simply believe. You must also obey. And this happened throughout the whole New Testament, Acts 6 and 7. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Romans six seventeen. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have done what? Obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that was delivered you. Hebrews 5, 9. Jesus became the eternal source of salvation, salvation for all who do what? Obey him. For all who obeyed him. So the way to have salvation is through obedience. Here's another scripture. 1 Peter 4, 17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them be that do not obey the gospel of, of God? So you have... You have the source of eternal salvation if you obey, but something's going to happen if you don't obey. 
Now, I've listed some scriptures here that you can review when you get home. John chapter 8, Romans chapter 15, 2 Thessalonians 1, and Hebrews chapter 11. They're there because this is woven all through the scripture. You must believe and you must obey. These are staples of salvation. They're, they're the building blocks of, of yearning and seeking for God. So, this is an interesting thing. This is what Jesus talked about. And, and I want to present to you the gospel tonight. What is the gospel? If you're with me on your booklets, we're on page 5. And Jesus said, this is Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Now, if you're in a booklet tonight, uh, or you've downloaded the PDF, you may not, you may just have done this in black letters. But uh, some people have a really, they really love the red letters because they think the red letters are more important than the black letters. I just want you to know, Jesus did not talk in red letters. The red letters and the black letters were written by the same men with the same ink. But just for those who like the red letters, let's talk about what Jesus said. He said, repent ye and believe the gospel. The gospel, very important. Believe and obey the gospel. Here's Galatians chapter 1. Now remember, this is to a church that had already believed the gospel, had obeyed it. And Paul is going to write to this church in Galatia. He says, this is very strong, Paul is not... Well, let's just say he never went through Zig Ziglar's class. He wasn't trying to win friends and influence people. He probably didn't really care too much about what they thought. And he, this is what he wrote. He said, I marvel, this is very sarcastic, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he made this massive statement. It's, it, it is bold. He said, but though we, if we come back here, or an angel from heaven descend from the clouds, and they preach, if we preach, or an angel preaches any other gospel, than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Whatever I said before, Paul said, that's the gospel. Anything that's changed, or anyone who changes it, should be cursed. The gospel, ladies and gentlemen, is the only way to be saved. Jesus said that we must believe the gospel. Paul said that anyone who changes it will be cursed. So the question is, what is the gospel? Now, th- there's a, a common thread, and it's not really all over the world. In fact, it's really isolated to Western culture, that the gospel is the good news. In fact, in a lot of Bibles today, instead of even saying the gospel, they just say the words good news. Now, I, I'm good with that. I'm fine with the good news. But good news, when you say the gospel is the good news, it's kind of like putting a cherry on top of the cake. It's not the cake. In fact, I don't even have to create the definition of the gospel. No one has to because the Bible has already gave us the definition of what the gospel is. So we don't have to take a vote on that. We don't have to have some denominational leader No one has to write a commentary on what the gospel is. The Bible has already told us what the gospel is. And it comes from Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. He said in in Corinthians chapter 1 verses, uh, chapter 15 rather, verses 1 through 4. He said, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached unto you. Let me remind you. You received the gospel. How that Jesus died for our sins. 
according to the scripture. That means it was prophesied and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day or he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. This is the prophetic word and it happened. The gospel, we can call it the good news. I'm fine if someone wants to call it the good news. But what is good news? What's that mean? What does that mean? The gospel. How do you obey the gospel? The gospel will forever be this. Here's the gospel according to the Bible. The gospel is the death See, already I'm messing up. Number two. It's the burial. And it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to say that a hundred more times because I want that to be firmly imprinted in your thinking. The only way to be saved is through obeying the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And our first lesson, we're covering the overview, we're talking about the gospel, and we're going to talk about the death. And then next week, we're going to talk about the burial. And the third week, we're going to talk about the resurrection. So, let's, let's do this on page six. Death equals repentance, or to repent. How can I die? If I'm going to obey the gospel... How do I obey the gospel? Now, I can't die like Jesus died. He was the propitiation for our sins. He was the ultimate sacrifice. But in my world, in our world, we have to die out or die to our old nature. You see, repentance identifies us with Christ and death. And this, of course, stands to reason. There's no burial or resurrection until there is first a death. Resurrection demands a death. Now the Greek word for repent is, is matinio or matanio, which means a change of mind. In fact, repentance means to turn away from sin or to die to sin. In fact, to turn away is almost like a soldier who you can, if you can imagine your mind, clicking their heels and doing an about face. Repentance is not just saying, I'm really sorry for that. That's, that's an apology. But repentance is turning away or changing. It's a change of mind in both turning away from sin and turning towards God. It's doing the exact opposite of what you did before. When you repent, you ask for forgiveness, but you also turn away from the actions of your past. And here's your Bible. Uh, I'll, I'll quote a little bit of Romans 6. Uh, what shall we say then? Paul wrote. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Here's verse 2. It's in your handout. God forbid. How shall we that are what? Dead to sin live any longer therein. 1 Corinthians. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Here's this red letter. Jesus speaking. Luke 13. 3. I tell you nay except ye repent. You'll all likewise perish. See, no one is going to be saved unless they repent. You can't just say, I believe. No, no, no. There's no scripture for that. You have to, re you have to repent because you have to be clean. If you say, well, I believe and now I'm saved. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. What goes, be what goes after the believing? 
what goes after the believing. So when I say that believing is not enough, it means that you've just taken the first step. It's the acknowledgement of God. You still have to clean your heart and change your ways. In fact, Luke 3, 8, bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. Something has to be done for us to display that we are repentive. There are fruits worthy of repentance. Acts 3.19, repent ye therefore and be converted. Wow, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come for the presence of the Lord. This is a command. If you read Psalm 51, it's a psalm of repentance. David is caught in an affair and in a very sordid situation. Mark 1, Luke 3, repent. Death equals repentance. If I'm going to believe the gospel, I've got to repent. And if I'm going to obey the gospel, I've got to die out to something. Now, this is a small overview, and we'll get into this even further as we move along in our, in our series. Burial. Jesus was baptized. When we're baptized, the old nature, our old nature is also buried. Baptism of water is the burial of our sinful nature. It's the process of washing away our sins. Here's the next verse in that, in that chapter of Romans. Romans 6 and 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Here's the next verse. Therefore we are buried with him, how? By baptism into death. Colossians 2.12. I'm, I'm kind of going quickly here now, but all of these verses are in agreement with one another. Buried with him, how? In baptism. Wherein also you're risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. Galatians 3.27, I love this verse. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have done what? Put on Christ. You can't put on Christ unless you're baptized into Christ. This is, I love this, this scripture. This is Acts 22.16. And we're going to get back to this a little bit. But Paul is recounting the story of his life. Paul was, his, his name was Saul before his name was changed to Paul. And this is the man that helped him. He was a priest. His name was, was uh, Ananias. He was a priest. And he said to, to this new convert that was, that was being converted, why are you tearing? Arise and be baptized and wash. Everyone say wash. Wash away thy sins calling on the name of the Lord. Baptism is a burial and a washing. Now look what Jesus did. Now if, if, we, if we would go back to our, if we would go back to to our Gospels, and we talked about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. At each of, of, of these books, at, at the end of Matthew, and at the end of Mark, Luke, and John, there are these commissions. We know them as the Great Commission. Okay, little Picasso there. The Great Commission. A lot of people know, the, know Matthew's version of it, but let's, let's ask, what did Mark write? The book of Mark. This is what Jesus said at the end of the book of Mark. There are 16 chapters in the book of Mark. Here's what Jesus said, and send your hand out. Mark 16, 16. He that believeth, there's the word believeth, and is baptized shall be saved. Let's do that again. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Jesus did not say, he didn't say, he that believed is saved, and sometimes later you get baptized. That's not what he said. 
He didn't say, you believe and you're saved. He said, believe and is baptized shall be saved. Because Jesus was emphasizing baptism. Let's look at more of this, of this thought of baptism of water. Here's the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. That's the gospel. When I repent, I am dead to sin. When I repent, I'm dead to sin. And we're just doing this overview here because we want to we delve into baptism next week, but let's just look at what happened in John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees. His name was Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night. And why would he do that? He did that because this was out of order for him. All the Pharisees, they despise Jesus. But here is one Pharisee who wanted to, in sincerity, talk to the Lord. And he said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a good teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Those, that's a formality. We know you're a good rabbi. We know you're a good teacher. We know you came from God. In other words, you're a representative. Nicodemus has no idea who he's talking to. But he is kind. He is respectful. He, he even lays out evidence. No one can do what you're doing unless God's with him. And in verse 3, Jesus cuts to the chase. He bypasses all formality. And Jesus answered and said unto Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now this is very troubling for Nicodemus. He does not understand. He's thinking naturally. And he replies, Well, Lord, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time to his mother's womb and be born? And the Lord is now going to clarify. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water, and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. What you're talking about is flesh, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. But don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. So let me just tell everyone, no matter what anyone tells you, you've got to be born again. No one's going to see the kingdom of God. No one's going to go to heaven unless you're born again of the water and of the spirit. That's what Jesus said. This is not my word. This is the Lord's word. So these are representations. What are they? They're types. What are the types? They're types of baptisms, and they're found right here in John chapter 3. Jesus is setting the stage for the church to come. He is, he is setting it up for the church to come. So the two types of baptisms that are found in these verses are water baptism and spirit baptism. So here's the gospel. It's the death it's the burial, and it's the resurrection. You've got to obey the gospel. You must repent, Jesus said, or you'll die in your sin. He said that you have to be baptized or buried in water. This is what Paul wrote in the book of Romans, chapter 6. This is water baptism. So if you're taking other notes... These are great things. Here is spirit, and the last one is spirit baptism. That's the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. 
Here is the final one that I'm going to just present to you, and then we're going to jump into these categories as we move along next week. Here's Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should walk in newness of life. The spirit that raised up that body, if it dwells in you, it's also going to raise you up. Here's Romans 8, 11. Here it is. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. There is a resurrection that comes through the, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now I'm just going, let's just do this little overview and this will help us with understanding our, our, um, our lesson tonight. We're just going to go back and kind of look at the Bible overview and as I said before prior, perhaps some of this is a little elementary and you, you kind of seen this or you knew it or maybe you grew up in church and you, you have, a, you have a, a very good understanding of the scripture, but we're just going to make sure that we cover all of the aspects and we're going to go down through the history of the Bible very quickly. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve and they were without sin and they were naked. The Bible says they were naked and unashamed because when you're innocent, in complete innocence, um, you don't recognize that you have no clothes on. (laughs) And so here they are. Here's Adam. Here's Adam. And here's Eve. I'll actually put a little skirt on her um, to be appropriate here. So there's Adam and Eve. They're in the garden. They're having a wonderful time. They're eating all the fruit, but um, there is a, there's, a, there's a tree that they're not supposed to eat of. And the, the serpent, Lucifer, Satan, tempts Eve, and Eve is deceived. The New Testament says that Adam was not deceived. He knew exactly what was going on. But he succumbed to the wishes of his wife. And, uh, and so they disobeyed God. And immediately, what happened? they noticed that they were naked and they tried to cover themselves up with leaves, perhaps even fig leaves. And they tried to cover themselves up and then God, the Bible says that the Spirit of God walked with them in the cool of the day. So we don't know exactly how that happened. Maybe some cloud or maybe it was just the presence, some kind of aura was there. And sometimes when we, when we use terms like walking or, or physical, um, physical features, I'm gonna give you a big word next week but physical features, this is just for our understanding. It, it doesn't mean literal. It's not a literal walking. But, but the Spirit of God, the presence of God was with them during the cool of the day, in the morning time, in the evening time. And so God comes and he says to Adam and Eve, where are you? They're hiding. Now notice this, everyone. God never asks a question that he doesn't already know the answer. God's not trying to find them. He knows where they are. But this is a provoking question. In other words, why are you hiding? He knew why they were hiding. He wants them to describe why they're hiding. And they covered up. Now, why did they cover up? Because when sin entered the world, and this is my teaching from my understanding, all of a sudden a conscience arose in them. They didn't need to have the conscience because they were innocent. The Bible says in the last days, people will, their hearts will be vexed and they'll have their conscience seared like with a hot iron, the Bible says. 
And when they had their conscience seared, guess what people do when they lose their conscience? They take their clothes off. Everyone's walking around with no clothes on. And they think it's fine. Why do they think it's fine? Because they have seared their conscience, the Bible says, like with a hot iron. When, when our children were very small, in fact, when they were real little babies, we'd have, we had a, on the first floor of our home, we had a bathtub, and that's where they took most of their baths. And they, from time to time, people would come over, and, you know, they'd, people would always come over when the kids were in the bathtub. And then, of course, the kids wanted to see everybody, and so they would get out of the bathtub and run to the house, you know, and then we'd start singing, and they call them the streak. And I don't know if we sing that song around here or not, but, but you know, we would just say, boogity boogie, and they're running around, and they have no clothes on. And they're happy, they're free, they're free. But before God and country. <laughs> well, why were they doing that? Because they were innocent. They're a year old, they don't know. They're innocent. And so this is what was happening with Adam and Eve. But when they sinned, they lost their innocence because disobedience is the introduction to sin. When they disobeyed, they sinned, and then they had to cover up. Well, God was not pleased with the leaves, with the fig leaves or whatever branches they had made. And I think I could probably show a possibility of a fig leaf, that it was the actual fig leaf. Jesus cursed the fig tree, even though it was out of season. Um, it, it appears that there is a remnant of this incarnate God looking back. They tried to cover themselves up with these leaves, but the Lord would not allow them to make their own clothes because sin demands a price and it needs blood, blood atonement. Here's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without the shedding of blood is no remission. So God killed the first animals and made clothes out of the skin of the animals. In this Garden of Eden, there was no sin, but from, from that introduction all the way th throughout the whole Old Testament, there's a long trail of blood. Blood covered sin. In fact, every year, as I described earlier, the people would bring a sacrifice, blood covered sin. Why would the Bible use blood? Here's Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh or the life of the body is in the blood. I always joke around and say, you know, you can live without a lot of things. You can live without a gallbladder. You can, people have. You can live without a, you know, one kidney. Um, you can live, I, you could probably live without a brain. I know a lot of people have done that. <laughs> Sorry, that's offensive. <laughs> but you can't live without blood. You cannot live without blood. And in fact, if you have a depletion of blood, you can die because the life of the body is in the blood. The blood carries all the nutrients, oxygen and vitamins and, and, and the blood clots that, that, that help, help your body so you don't, you don't bleed out. The blood has all of the life in it. You can't live without blood. Even a blood transfusion at times is necessary to keep people alive and to keep people healthy. And that blood sacrifice moved all through, even from the book of Genesis, all the way down to this book that I read, uh, talked about earlier called Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. It's a long trail of blood, thousands of years of blood sacrifice. 
Cain and Abel were commanded to make a blood sacrifice. Noah, the first thing Noah did when he got off the ark, he built an altar and made a blood sacrifice. Because Noah, Noah was in the ark and he led all the animals two by two. But if they were clean, he led them seven by seven. So if you ever see a picture with just two by two, well, the clean animals were seven by seven. So he took one of those clean animals and he made a blood sacrifice when he got off of the ark. Blood sacrifices throughout the whole New Testament. And then came that period of time when, of course, as I talked to you about, God was silent because they didn't bring their best, they brought their least. They brought, they brought something that really didn't even constitute a blood sacrifice. It was, it was begrudgingly, it was an obedience, but not true obedience. And there was silence. Heaven was silent. And then comes this man named John the Baptist on the scene. He's like Lewis and Clark. He's paving the way. He's the six-month-older cousin of Jesus Christ. And he's talking about the Lord. And one day he sees the Lord. I'm talking about this next week. But he sees the Lord coming. He says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Now there's going to come a lamb that's going to remove the need for all the other blood sacrifices. Jesus is going to be the lamb, and John the Baptist knows it. This is a very interesting moment here in our, in our, uh, in our study, because immediately people are going to think, well, you're talking about baptism and salvation. What about the man on the cross? What about... What about the man who was, who was on the cross with Jesus and Jesus said to him, we're going to, to, today you're going to be with me in paradise. What about that man? And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. I think, do we have that on the screen? I want to make sure that I'm, that I'm following uh, our screens correctly um, about that about that blood sacrifice. So help me a little bit. Make, I want to make sure that I'm not passing that by. Is, is Lori here? Okay. Am I with you, Lori? All right. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about that. In fact, we, we may just get into that next week, but I, uh, okay, that's good. Let's, let's do that. This is Hebrews chapter nine, verse 16. So let's talk about this moment where there's 400 years And then you have this, this birth of Jesus Christ that culminates on the death of Jesus Christ. He is, he is murdered between two thieves. And then you have this book of Acts because all through this, the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus, these, this is Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, hopefully my writing's not too small for you. Can you see it there? And then here's the book of Acts. And this is an incredible thing that happens. Here is, here is the birth of Jesus Christ. Here's the death of Jesus Christ. There's about 33 and a half years of his living. Then comes this book of Acts where the early church began. Now, some folks talk to me about baptism and say, well, you know that thief on the cross that said, Lord, 
you know, I believe in you, and the Lord said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He wasn't, he wasn't baptized. Why should we be baptized? Well, let me answer that question for you. You see, Jesus had not yet died. And so the Old Testament is a testament, but really a testament does not begin until the death of the testator. So this thief wasn't baptized, but neither was Abraham or Moses or any of the patriarchs. So the thief on the cross is listed in the Abrahamic covenant which, which, and let's just look at the scripture. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. So if you're looking at, at Hebrews chapter 9, you'll notice that the testament doesn't begin until the death of the testator. Or the will doesn't begin. It doesn't begin. So even though we, we think that the, that the New Testament began with Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it really doesn't even begin really until the end of all of those books, those gospels. That's when the real New Testament begins, after Jesus died. And that thief on the cross is covered underneath the Abrahamic covenant. But there's going to come a time that we've already found out in John 3, you must be born again of the water and of the Spirit. Look at verse 17 of, of Hebrews chapter 9. For a testament is a force after men are dead, Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. So when Jesus died, that began the testament. That began the testament. So even though the writers have broken this down for us, which I appreciate very much, and I'm okay to, to open up uh, the book of Matthew and, and list it as the, as the New Testament, I want to just point out tonight don't take the thief on the cross as a removal of our need to be baptized, to repent, or to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So, this is what happened. Jesus came to establish his church. And, and, and it's a beautiful thing. Now I've got a whole bunch of things I need to erase here. Because several significant things happened. Several significant things happened. In fact, there... They're, they're mind-boggling to us, but the Jews knew this because there are three main, uh, there are three main festivals in Jerusalem in the, in the Jewish culture. The first festival is the Passover. The Passover. We know that as Pesach. That's when, the, that's when the angel passed over their homes. When they saw the blood, they passed over their homes. Think of that moment. They're going to, they're going to die unless they have the blood applied to their homes. And we're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about that when we, when we discuss types. The second thing is what happened 50 days later. 50 days later at Mount Sinai. So they go through the Red Sea. They get to Mount Sinai. And, and we go from Passover. We know this festival as Pentecost or 50. That's where we get the, the word, uh, the days 50. Pentecost. And the final one comes in the fall, and it's called Sukkot. And that's, the, that's where the Feast of Trumpets is, and it's, it's, the, it's the festival that celebrates tents, or living in tents. They're remembering what happened. God wanted the people to remember what they went through. 
So every year, even to this day, every Jewish family on Passover night, fathers will ask their sons and daughters, what makes tonight different from every other night in the year? And they describe the night of the Passover. When the angel came, and we can even call that angel the angel of judgment or of death, and the firstborn of every home would be killed. That was the tenth plague. But if you had the blood applied, think of, think of this image, and I may say this again. God told them, take a lamb, kill the lamb. Take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorpost of your home and then cook the lamb and bring it inside and eat all of it. Blood on the outside, lamb on the inside. Blood on the outside, lamb on the inside. It's a picture of our salvation also. This is Passover. And 50 days later, they're at Sinai where the law was given. Oh, And I'll spell it correctly some, one of these days. Okay, Sinai, where the law was given. But God said in the prophets, he, in Jeremiah, he said, I'm going to take out that stony heart and I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. I'm going to write my laws on the tablets of your heart. So this was a stone. This was a, this was a tablet of stone at Sinai. I'll, I'll rewrite it. This was a tablet of, of stone at Sinai. But on Pentecost... When, when the, the upper room happened and the, new, and, the, and the birth of the church happened, then a new covenant was put in their heart, his law. And then finally, it's Sukkot, and we'll get to that in time. These are the three, one, two, and three. These are the festivals, and they knew this. So this is Jesus. He, he, he rises from the, from the grave. Here's the cross. He rises from the grave. He's in the grave three days. The Bible says he was with his disciples for 40 days and he sent them to an upper room for seven days, about seven days, and that was 50 days altogether. And from his resurrection to the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, the Bible says when the day of Pentecost was fully come, there was a change and the gospel was preached for the first time. I'm going to close with this, with these few verses here. One day, Jesus was, was speaking with Peter, and he said to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, Peter. I'm going to give you these keys. Now, of course, Peter had no idea what Jesus was talking about, and he's not going to know. He said, and I'm, going to, I'm going to build my church. Thou art, Peter, if you're looking at your scriptures in Matthew 16, and upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, that doesn't mean that he was building upon Peter. Peter or Simon, that's a small pebble. He's talking about himself. Upon myself, I'm going to build my church. I'm the rock. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You have to understand the imagery here of the gates of hell. Let me just tell you about the gates. The gates. Um, I've been to Israel several times, and we always go through a, a few different old ruins of cities and one of those ruins, there's these massive gates. Now, it's not like the gates that we have with an iron gate, but these gates are deep. You walk in through, and there's a little corridor there. There's a little place to sit here, and the gates might be 12 or 15 feet long. Not wide, but deep. And that's where magistrates and governors and elders would sit. And the conduct or the government would be issued all 
of the administration of the city happened at the gates. Even in the Old Testament, a man named Boaz met the elders at the gates of the city. So when, when we're talking about gates of hell, we're not talking about a defense. Now, you might have a gate, it's to keep people out, it's a defense. We're talking about government, the power, the highest authority of hell will not prevail against the church. <laughs> and Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. And I'm going to give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. These are the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Peter does not know it until the men come. Remember I said they were pricked in their heart? And they said, what should we do to be saved? And Peter pulls out the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to show you next week these incredible keys that match and mirror perfectly the end of the book of Luke and the Luke's great commission when Peter said, repent, here's the gospel, death, burial, resurrection. Death, burial, resurrection. These are the keys to heaven. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. That's water baptism. For. Everyone say the word for. That word comes from a Greek word. It has six different meanings. And the meaning that Paul, that Peter is talking about means to obtain. Everyone say to obtain. For or to obtain remission of sins. And ye shall receive, here's the resurrection, the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you, to your children and and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Peter declares and defines the Holy Ghost as the promise. And when we get to lesson three, we're going to talk about the Holy Ghost as the promise. So let me just talk to you tonight a little bit. The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Peter preached the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Paul preached the gospel. Paul said, don't let anyone change the gospel. Jesus said, believe and obey the gospel. What's the gospel? It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection. So as we started ask, answering this question, how can I be saved? You have to believe. You have to obey. You must repent. No one's going to go to heaven with it except you repent. Jesus said, you'll die in your sins. And then he told us, you must be born again of water and of the spirit. This is the Bible. It's not... Not a, it's not an idea of, of a collective group. It's not a bunch of people sitting in a focus group or a room deciding how to be saved. But this is the scripture and we want to obey all of the scripture. Not just something that someone says or a commentary. It's death, burial, and resurrection. This is our tabletop Bible study. I'm so glad you joined us tonight. Next week when we talk, we're going to go to the next lesson and we're going to talk about water, baptism, burial, or being buried with Christ. I'm going to pray before we end our session. Uh, Lord, I'm so grateful for your word. And I pray that nothing would steal the seed out of the heart. I pray that our lives would be focused on your word. That we would study the word. That we would know the word. We want to obey the word, what you have said. You've given this book to us, Lord. It's the infallible word of God. You breathed it. Men wrote it as it was your will. So I pray tonight, I pray that all the people that hear it would receive it with gladness and with joy. We thank you for this time. And I pray, Lord, help us to obey the word. 
No matter what other people do, help us to just simply obey the word. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.